welcome to our honoring and healing book club. Today we are discussing a very special book with a very special person, very dear to our center's heart, Daryl James. He is the author of Phoenix 13. And uh, I'm going to read just a little, a couple of excerpts from uh, something that was said by Lana Cunningham, special correspondent. So just a few pieces out of there to get us going. Um, So Daryl James can say that he survived all the odds. I'm so sorry. (laughs) That doesn't continue. Hey, the beauty of Zoom, right? Um, (laughs) We're all dog lovers, especially Daryl. Okay, where do we begin? Uh, Daryl grew up in New Jersey, went to Rutgers University. Um, he joined the ROTC because it was interesting. Um, after obtaining a bachelor's degree in geology, he was given a two-year deferment to stay in college and work on a master's degree. Uh, during college, he volunteered for the Army Flight Program, earned a private pilot license, And after graduating in 1967 with his master's degree, James entered the army and eventually Gerald James is one of the 10,000 helicopter pilots assigned to Vietnam. Um, So this is really amazing that we have someone who has been able to be a part of this experience and has served our country on Veterans Day. We are thrilled. Uh, Daryl says that serving in the army gave him leadership qualities and confidence in himself, which I think ties very much into mental health, Um, even though mental health is such a big topic for our veterans. I think this book is just right on point for what our cause is. Of course, Centers uh, gives uh, free counseling, offers free counseling to our veterans and military servicemen and women and their families. So uh, welcome, Daryl. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, and tell us where you are today. Well, we're in Phoenix, and uh, which is kind of fitting. The name of our unit was yes. uh, Phoenix Phoenix Flight with Division Artillery, Marical Division Artillery, and I Corps. And uh, it's fitting to be in Phoenix because I'm meeting with seven of the guys I flew with and and their wives for a little uh, reunion. And we got to uh, have a lot of fun, drink wine together, maybe too much, and then we. Uh, Got to tour, which is really especially exciting, the uh, McDonnell Douglas plant that makes the Little Bird, which was the successor to the uh, the Hughes LOH-6 Alpha, the Loach that uh, we all flew, my buddies and I flew in uh, Vietnam with AmeriCal Division. So it's been, it's kind of fun. We kind of meet together or try to meet together at least once a year and just, just our small group. And sometimes we meet together with the large Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association reunion, which is very large, usually a thousand attendees. We we do that, uh, try to do that occasionally as well. But with COVID, I, I things have slowed down. Love that you guys do that. That's incredible. And I mean, everything just coming together today on Veterans Day. It's fantastic. 
Um, so I want to know how, what inspired you to actually write a book. Obviously you have great stories. You have very important experiences to share, but what inspired you to get down and dirty and write a book, an actual book? Well, the, the VHPA has a magazine called the, uh, the aviator it comes out four times a year. And I started writing short stories and they were getting published about my flying experiences. They're getting published in the aviator and also published in some social media on Facebook and so forth. And I was, uh, in the air metal, air metal society for one. And I was, uh, encouraged to, uh, uh, put them all together and, and try to publish a book. So the book is a collection of short stories that's chronological and uh, it kind of chrono cat, you know, categories or describes my year in Vietnam, but also these are stories about my friends too and their flying experiences. Cause what's a little different about uh, what we flew. Uh, I was in, Armor Branch, which tanks and so forth. And I was a tank platoon leader before I went to flight school. So when I was assigned to Vietnam, I was assuming, like everyone else, that I'd be flying a Huey, just like I was trained to fly at uh, Fort Rucker. So I'd be flying a Huey. Well, it turns out that when I arrived in uh, July with AmeriCal, they had other plans for me. They sent me over to an artillery unit. And the artillery unit, flew scout helicopters, which means one pilot. So where the average pilot or nearly all pilots in Vietnam got to be a co-pilot for four months with an experienced aircraft commander over in the left seat, that wasn't the case for us. We were given three to five hours of kind of orientation instruction in the helicopter, given a map and given a mission. and scared me to death. So we didn't have a way to co uh, collect our experiences together. So there was no way to do that. So the way we found to collect our, to find out what each other did and what we learned that day is we would meet at the officer's club in the evening and uh, we would uh, have drinks and we would tell each other tins. Now tins is uh, the army's anachronism for our, oh, local, Vietnam anachronism for this is what happened to me today. This is no SHIT. And uh, so we would tell these tins to each other. And generally they were true stuff. But anyway, we would learn from these tins. What did you do today? How did that happen? What, how did you get out of that? What, you know, so we learned that way. And that, this is one of the things that kept us alive and helped us survive uh, flying with a single pilot. Uh, aircraft, scout helicopter, like we did. That's, uh, wow. I just, I love the acronym, of course. That's great. <laughs> but it's perfect. It's exactly when it is. It's just. Oh, we had a lot of them. Some of them I'm really not going to say here, but that was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we have adopted your tins and we, we will use that from, from this point forward. Yes. When we're uh, for. It's things. good to get people to talk about things that they saw and so forth. And I think uh, it was important for us. Not only did we learn, it, uh, it helped us to cope because, you know, some of these things were, were tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, and that's, uh, gosh, that means so much to everyone's mental health to be able to share these stories and whatever trauma, traumatic experiences. And unfortunately in the situation that you all were in, it's just constant traumatic experience on a regular basis, but well, it, was, it, it wasn't as bad as maybe you're implying because most of the time it was, it was kind of, we had, we had fun. We had That's some fun. fun. We, uh, uh, and the book describes some of that stuff. It's, it's not all, it's not all about, uh, it's not blood and guts and so forth. Although there are some harrowing experiences yes. that I tell about in the book, but most of the time it was just the fun we did to each other and had together and some of the stupid things we did when we were off. But uh, it has a lot of flying experiences and flying, uh, they say, is uh, 90% boredom and 10% sheer terror. And that, you know, that, that kind of was true. Most of it was just ordinary, nice flying and beautiful country with mountains and green jungle underneath you. But there was the 10% of the time when it was somebody shooting at you and when you had sheer terror. But 90% of the time it was okay. It wasn't so bad. Uh, definitely I can do without some of that 10% in my life. Um, but this brings me to, I'm thinking about some of your stories and I pulled a couple that we can, for us to discuss, of course, you, I'd love for you to share your favorite also. Um, the first story, the chapter one, four years prior to Vietnam, when you have, uh, uh, let's see, private, but uh, you'll have to forgive me. I've, I've. Yeah, I was uh, I was okay. a platoon leader then because I was in yes, when I graduated. Yeah, when I graduated from college and entered active duty, although I had four years of ROTC, so it's not like I was just entering the army. I just was entering active service, so they sent me immediately to uh, armor officers uh, school, which is where they were teaching me about tanks. I had six M60A1 tanks, and I was a platoon leader. And my platoon consisted of a whole bunch of guys of different so forth that drove these tanks and shot the guns in these tanks. And this one particular time, I get a call from uh, uh, the, the MPs, Provost Marshall, he, and he said, do you know, a, I've forgotten a fellow's name now, I'll have to refresh my memory in the book, but do you know a private so-and-so? Uh, I said, yeah, uh, he's in my platoon. And he said, well, he is off in, uh, I think it was Iowa, across the, I was in Kentucky, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And he said, uh, he's in jail over there. This is Private oh, Merriweather. Private Merriweather. Okay, yeah. thanks. He's in jail. And I said, oh, boy. And uh, he said, uh, what do you want to do about it? I said, well, I guess I better, uh, I, I guess I better go, I guess I better go see if I can get him. So I called my company commander, my boss captain i was just a second lieutenant and i said i just got this call i'm going to head off to iowa it's two o'clock in the morning so i did that and i went over and got him out of jail and he headed into a fight he was all bloody and and uh, had a he was drunk i'm sure and he was uh beaten up by some some guys in this local local town this redneck town and uh, so i went in and talked to the uh the jailer was an ex ex-military, so it, 
or one of the one of the people that uh, was watching was ex-military. So he was kind to me and kind to, to the fellow. So we got him cleaned up as best we could, and we went over to see the judge. And the judge said, uh, "I said I was trying to explain to him that I was going to be responsible and take him back to his unit, and that and the judge wanted me to be sure that he would come back for his for his hearing." And I said, yeah, I will make sure he comes back for his hearing. And, uh, well, uh, I took him home, bought him breakfast on the way and dropped him off to his sergeant. And uh, doing that, they say earning respect, especially for a second lieutenant. No mm -hmm. one, second lieutenants are, are usually treated like everyone stays away from them. They're usually dangerous. No one wants to do what they do or anything. And so you have to earn respect. Well, I earned respect doing that very quickly. It didn't take a yeah. slow period of time. Instantly, I had the respect of my entire platoon. That's what, uh, what I took from the story. Um, there's an, ex an excerpt from the book. James's stock went up considerably in the eyes of his platoon over the incident. From that day on, the enlisted men and non-commissioned officers of his platoon stood solidly behind him. I love that. That really goes to show how important it is to build that trust and those relationships. And well, that's leadership, you know, and that's yes, absolutely something, something you have to learn to do. Definitely. So um, the next one is actually chapter eight, uh, and this is uh, this is pretty intense. I felt myself kind of feeling like this is like being, you know, some of these stories. You're almost feel like you're in a movie listening. Um, holes in my chopper. Yes. Uh, everyone was waiting. You kind of wait because you don't know what it's like to be shot at because you can't hear. You don't have doors. You have a, a helmet that's soundproof. But you can't hear. You can't hear very well unless it's really close. And you keep wondering, well, what's it? I keep always ask, what's it like to to be shot at. And the guys, <coughs> they said, it's kind of like a hammer hitting the side of your helicopter. Well, I was coming back from a place called Duck Foe. And uh, when I when I took off, dropped this fellow off, he left his seatbelt outside. And uh, it started banging on the side of the helicopter. Well, I, I had to find a safe place to land and, and put the heli uh, buckle of seatbelt so it wouldn't be dangerous and banging on the side of the helicopter. So I did that, but it sounded pretty loud. And so I landed at Doug Foe, filled up, took off from Doug Foe back to Chulai after I topped off gas, and I got those same sounds again. So I'm looking all around the helicopter. Is the other seatbelt loose somewhere? So I'm looking all around. I didn't see anything. But uh, as I'm coming into the heliport to land, uh, the uh, tower advised me that I have blue smoke trailing out the back of the helicopter. And I said, oh, I'm looking at my gauges. They all seem okay. Uh, I don't know what, you know, I'm just everything. So I landed in the revetments and uh, told the, uh, the crew chief who met me that what, what had happened, he said, uh, we'll, we'll see what's going on. So uh, anyway, I went up to uh, to where we lived and with the guys and so forth. And oh, about an hour and a half later, uh, two crew chiefs come running up with a 
pan from the bottom of the helicopter with three holes. In it. So I was took three minutes. That's that was what just to not really know if you're being shot at and this. I mean, what an experience! And experiencing it for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one that I picked out um, was chapter 17, saving a snake driver's life. Um, and this one I felt like was very, it was pretty intense and you could feel. This one is intense and it involves one of my close friends who's not here. His name is Jim Minter. This is a very intense story. Jim was armor like me and he was able to transition from our unit to fly Cobra gunships. So he, uh, he, we, he kept close to us and he still stays close to us. So he, uh, became an aircraft commander on a, on a Cobra gunship and he was in a firing mission. He had two Cobra gunships and a loach. And, uh, while they were heading off west of this city called Tam Key, uh, he was shot through the leg. A brand new warrant officer was in the front seat. The front seat of the Cobra is not really made to fly, designed to fly. It has real tiny little controls that are off to your left and right. They're real small little things. They look like something you on a computer game rather than the real controls that are between your legs and on your side and are in, like in the backseat of that Cobra. So they were in a dive and all of a sudden he was shot. A brand new warrant officer on his first combat mission grabbed the young guy, grabbed the controls and turned into a hard right turn. Well, the Cobra gunship behind and the, and the loach that was flying with them were all calling, what's going on? What are you doing? And so forth. Well, up front, the only radio that you can use is a small, uh, it's just one, one, one small radio and you have to have the switches just right. He was, this warrant officer was flying. He wasn't trying to find the radio because that, uh, it was only just the FM radio. It was the only radio you can get. So anyway, he, he flew and landed a VIP uh, uh, pad at Tam Key. Now, a Cobra gunship never lands at a VIP pad. That's for the generals to land in their big, slick Huey helicopter. So he landed there, and he jumped out of the, heli uh, the Cobra with the blade still turning, jumped back, flipped the canopy open, and pulled out my friend Jim Minter, who is uh, – just bleeding all over. The blood was all everywhere in the cockpit. Pulled him out of the helicopter to the ground, and meanwhile, other people came running over. And anyway, this uh, warrant officer put a put his put a belt around his uh, leg, and all of a sudden, uh, a dust off helicopter, which was on the other side of the hill, came on over to the VIP pad, and they put Jim Minter on the helicopter, flew him to Da Nang, which was the closest city, and stabilized him. Then flew into Chu Lai, which is closer to uh, where we live, and they operated on him. And then flew him that evening to uh, Japan, where they operated on him again. And a week later, he was flown back to the States. And uh, Jim uh, is was wounded severely, so he got out of the Army. And he has a very difficult time walking, but he's still one of our good friends and makes tries to make some of our, our trips but he can't do much walking. So it's, uh, it's kind of hard on him, but that was a true story about Jim Mintner. 
That's amazing that uh, the survival stories like that, um, just reading uh, the part where uh, the person who saved him said, I knew he only had about 10 minutes to live because of all of the blood loss. It's, yeah, there's a big artery in your, in your thigh. Yes. You can bleed out very quickly. Very, uh, yeah, very intense. And very lu I lucky though, on this particular hill called the Hill 2 Niner, he, land, uh, he landed on the VIP pad. That's all he knew to do, closest place to land. But on the other side of the hill was a uh, dust off station with two dust off helicopters. These are Red Cross kind of helicopters. You know, they don't, and, and uh, they immediately came over and picked them up and they have medics inside there and plasma and all the good things. And they immediately flew them to, uh, to the Nang, which was 10 minutes away where they stabilized them. That's just, uh, what a miracle. Um, so do you, that you've kind of picked as your favorite that you'd like to share from your book? Well, uh, you want me to read it or just tell you about it? Tell us. I love to hear you just tell us the story. So, uh, so I'm going to tell you the story. I'm not going to read it. Okay. I was the operations officer and I had two weeks to go to get it, to go back to the States. We'd say you're very short. When you're a pilot in our unit, in most, in most units, if you're very short, you don't fly any more combat missions. You might fly to the PX for the, for the colonel or general or fly, you know, some admin kind of mission, but you don't fly any combat missions. You just didn't do that. But terrible on morale to lose a, a pilot on his last week or two before going home from Vietnam. I mean, it's terrible to lose any time, but that would be extremely tough on morale. So I was the operations officer. I was the guy who assigned everybody's flights for the day and for the next day and so forth. I assigned the missions along with the, our operations sergeant. Well, all the guys came in, it was, just, it was getting dark and we we're getting ready to turn the lights out in the operations, uh, Pooch, our shed that we called it. And uh, the sergeant and I were ready to pack up, and all of a sudden, the, this our, our leader, this brand new major, who has been our leader for a, well, a month or so, a few weeks, but he was kind of mysterious to us because he was very condescending. No one's, he didn't get, he didn't seem to make friends with the guys, and he didn't fly any missions. He was a pilot, but he didn't fly any missions. And a leader should always fly some of the missions for just good for morale, but he didn't, hadn't flown any missions, hadn't flown at all as far as we know. So anyway, he came in and said, they need a FADAC computer out at uh, LZ Stinson. Now a FADAC computer, back in those days, a computer uh, was about as big as a suitcase. And this one was, it was metal. And this is how they fired their gun. They, they fired all the data and calculated the data to instruct each one of the 105 millimeter howitzers uh, where to aim, what azimuth to be on, what elevation to be on, and what kind of ammunition to put in it and so forth, how much powder and all, all those kinds of things. And uh, he said, they need that FADAC out there now. They're supporting uh, the, the infantry all around them. Is at night now. And uh, I said, well, we don't fly at night, Major because uh, it's very dangerous to fly at night. And uh, 
we don't fly any combat missions at night unless a tactical emergency, we call it a TAC-E, a tactical emergency, which usually means someone's life is in danger. Like someone's been wounded badly. Any, uh, that's a, like you said, he says, well, I'll call it TAC-E. I said, you can't call it TAC-E. Only the full bird colonel can call it TAC-E or his executive officer. So he, he left, ran out and charged out the door. And I'm looking at the sergeant saying, looking at him like, you know, this could be bad. I said, run up to the officer's club and see who's, who could be available to go fly with me. Yes, I have to fly because I'm not going to, I mean, if I have to fly it, I'll fly it. But I didn't want to fly it. I'm two weeks to go home. And so he ran up there and he came back and he said, they're all on their second round of drinks and playing liar's dice to see who paying for it. So I'm thinking, oh, this is bad. There's no one there available to fly with to fly with me. If I have to fly, I have to fly solo. Next thing you know, the, the major comes in and said, oh, they brought in a they brought in that computer. And then the major followed later and he said, I got your TAC E called by the colonel. So go fly the mission. It's I said, well, Major, it takes two pilots for us to fly at night. You're gonna have to fly with me. And he goes, get one of your guys to fly. I said, they're, they're all up at the officer's club drinking. He says, you mean your, your pilots are all drunk at the officer's club? Well, they weren't drunk. They were just drinking. You can't, you, can't have a, you can't fly if you've been drinking. And he goes, well, then you'll have to fly it. I said, well, it, we need two pilots to fly at night. It's just too dangerous. And he said, nope, I'm, I'm going to work the radios. I said, the sergeant here can work the radios back. He wouldn't fly. So... I looked over at the sergeant and said, how would you like to fly with me? And he said, I'd love to. So we go down to the flight line. We're met by a guy with the nickname Whale, crew chief. He heard all about it. He says, take my, take my aircraft and let me take a M60 machine gun I said, no, we want to be light. This is going to be easy. We're just going to do this. The sergeant and I are going to fly. And uh, he was disappointed, but we flew his aircraft. And it was beautiful. It was very quiet at night. And we were under Salvation Controlling Agency. He had us on radar. So we turned off all the lights to try to just disappear at night. We dimmed our lights. And we're flying along Highway 1. And uh, we're under the control of... Uh, the flight control under radar. And so we get to the point where we have to turn toward the mountains and everything's dark and black out there. The sea, the, the China Sea is to our, uh, was to our left and it's all black. The hillsides are all black. The mountains are all black. You couldn't see any mountains. So we turned to the right and started heading to where I knew uh, this particular fire base was. And all of a sudden we see little lights down below, campfires and that sort of thing. And see a few tracers of somebody shooting, but they're not shooting at us or just, I don't know what they're shooting at, but they were, they were all the color pink, which is a friendly ammunition, no green ammunition that uh, the uh, VC uh, preferred. So all of a sudden we see in front of us a big light show because LZ Stinson opened up with its guns and they're shooting a fire mission. And I'm thinking, how are they firing that fire mission without the computers? I said, yeah, 
the sergeant was saying to me, and I said, they're using those little slide rule things like they taught us. He said, well, why didn't they use those slide rule things? And they're making us go out with a computer. I said, this is what we have to do. We have to bring the computer out there. So we get close and Salvation calls and said they have them under a check fire, which means all the guns stop shooting to allow us to land. So as we approached, we were advised to go to the east and circle in and we type corkscrew down right on top of the hill. And there was a quarter ton Jeep down there with its light shining onto some sandbag landing pad. This is where we were to land. It's all the light we had, just that. So I flicked the landing lights on twice just for a second or two so they could see me because I had no lights on the helicopter. We were just black, dark. And, and then they saw me and they turned the lights on in the Jeep. And so circled down and landed. And there are no, no doors or windows on the sides of a helicopter. Uh, so how you flew in combat, you just didn't fly with doors. So they immediately took off the good uh, computer, threw on the one that was uh, not working. And this uh, soldier jumps in the back and shouts over the roar of the engine and said, could you give me a ride back to Chulai? He says, I'm, I'm leaving in a month or so. I said, I am too, just climb in. So they strapped in. So uh, we're under a check fire. So we should, we started climbing and at 200 feet, all six 105 millimeter howitzer guns went off all around us shooting. We were right in the center of where they were shooting. It went all around us. It, it was so bright. I couldn't see, it was blinded. So I just pulled the collective and took off straight up and which was dangerous to do. And willing my eyesight to come back because I was temporarily blinded by that big flash. And also we were protected from the, the noise, mostly protected from the noise from our helmets. So the guy in the back didn't have a helmet, this uh, soldier in the back. He, so I'm sure he was screaming because of the, the noise. Holy smokes. All six guns and the helicopter's loud to begin with. So finally I could see, probably was 30 or seconds or so and I could see and I could look at my instruments and I was uh, flying at about 40 knots, which was dangerous. It's almost hovering. And I'm, uh, I pulled way too much uh, torque on the transmission to the red line. And so I was just not flying very well. Uh, so I lowered the nose on the helicopter and got it, everything under control and started the, uh, started the normal climb turned uh, and turned toward the uh, right. And as I turned toward the, no, as I turned toward the left on the corkscrew to get out, uh, a line of machine gun, green tracers, the enemy's kind of machine gun, goes off my right door. So I continued turning as tight as I could and continued climbing and turned back toward Chulai, just willing myself to disappear into the night. Turned off all the lights and just flew black flew dark again. And then meanwhile, Sergeant Jenkins is on the radios calling Salvation. He's calling the Hill saying, what in the heck happened? He's using different different words than that because they just nearly shot us out of the sky and we were under a check fire and everybody's saying, oh, that was just a Charlie Foxtrot. That's another one of those military anachronisms. You can figure that one out. Uh, it was, it, it, they weren't supposed to do that. They were telling us they were do, doing is saying all these nice things to try to make us feel better. It was just a mistake and so forth. We didn't say a word. So we, we, uh, we, we called the major, told him we're heading on back and so forth. 
and told him what happened. He says, well, I'm going to call those people on the hill and I'm going to chew them out blankety blank. And I'm thinking, yeah, you do that, Major. So anyway, we landed. Everyone, they threw out, we were met by a quarter ton and Jeep and they threw out the, uh, the defective uh, computer and the uh, soldier jumped on the quarter ton and he rode off. Uh, and the sergeant and I, we uh, walked on up to the operations office and now the operations office was full of old guys minus the major he was nowhere to be seen but they were all there just making sure we we're okay and that was the last time i flew in vietnam wow. and it was one of my most not most maybe but one of the very more dangerous missions i flew daryl like hi there daryl Yes. Hey, Robert. I haven't said much, but anyway, I do obviously always thank you for your service. I like it when you tell the story. I've read that story in both your books, I think, maybe just this one, but I thought it was in the other one, too. But anyway, it's, a, it's much better when you tell the story. Oh, well, thanks, Robert. I was wondering if maybe I should read it, but it's. Uh, no, no. Well, the story <laughs> kind of continues, and I, I'm not going to go into it very much, but the story continues because. Two days later, I hadn't received mail and from home in six weeks. And I got a letter. And the letter, it was the Dear John letter. And so immediately, the Dear John letter, the uh, uh, everyone was trying to help to get me home. Because the, 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 the full bird colonel, he said, how can we get James home like tomorrow? And the, the chaplain was up, I mean, the flight surgeon was up there, who's a friend of ours, a friend of mine. And he said, uh, well, he's a pilot and I just grounded him. He can't fly anymore. So he's not any use to us here. So he's going home tomorrow. So they tried to get me home tomorrow, but they couldn't because they were, I couldn't get a C-130 flight to, uh, they had orders. I mean, they had a reservation for me to fly from Cameron Bay to uh, California, but I I couldn't get there. There was no way to get there. Well, I had all kinds of people that were heard what happened, were wanting to, to fly me in Cobra gunships and all sorts of things. Well, our uh, otter pilot just heard he was he was gone for a week, fixed wing pilot, gone for a week flying a uh, liaison for somebody, and he heard. So he that particular uh, afternoon he flew in. And uh, I flew in the Otter, and one of the one of our pilots, Tim Booth, flew because again they don't like to fly at night by themselves. So he flew, uh, he rode with us, and he I flew in the co-pilot seat all the way to Cameron Bay, and then uh, Booth flew in the co-pilot seat to get back to July. Uh, but anyway, they got me home in 48 hours, so because wow. that was pretty traumatic, very traumatic for me. Oh. I bet. So on a note, I, how long did it take you to write this book? Well, it, uh, like I said, I wrote some of the stories uh, and had a few of the stories published. So I would say it took about a, probably about a year to get them all together and get them all polished and so forth. So I had, I had to write more stories to get them, get them all together. And, uh, You'll find stories in the book about uh, the guy, 
many of the guys that I'm with here this uh, this this week, things that they did, some of the silly things that they did. But there's some funny stories in there too. They're not all we told kind of told about some of the things that maybe are a little more dramatic. But uh, most of the stories are just are not nearly so dramatic, but a lot. Some of them are quite funny and quite amusing. So. Um, so what was the, what part, I'm sorry, Donna, did you have a question? I do. I have kind of a comment. That's my whole face in the screen. That's kind of weird. Um, so anyways, Daryl, when you first started this, you said something that was very interesting to me. You said these particular words, you said, I was just going to Vietnam. And as, and at the time that you went, do you feel that that was maybe a buffer on your emotional stance of just going to Vietnam since we're talking about mental health here with centers? Yeah, because I knew I was going to Vietnam because I never had a draft number. And, you know, I never, uh, I was a volunteer all the way because I volunteered for ROTC. And so, I mean, I, I knew I was going in the Army. Well, if you know you're going in the Army at that time, and, and I, I knew I was going to, I, I was hoping I was going to become a pilot because yeah, I had to go through flight school and pass that. But if that happened, I knew I was going to go to Vietnam. So what happened? Nine months of 10 months of flight school and then graduated, had a couple of weeks off. And next thing you know, I'm on an airplane going to Vietnam. I mean, I knew I was going and everyone knew they were going. And it, uh, it was that time when things were like that. And, Unfortunately, well, I mean, I, I think I'm fortunate in many ways to, to where I flew and the guys I flew with and so forth and so on. And fortunate to get through it all unscathed. But uh, it, it, you know, it was dangerous. I was, when I went over there, it was the height of the buildup. 68, 69, there were most uh, troops there and had the most casualties. And one thing I didn't say, but I, uh, it, it was a dangerous job because uh, well, flying is, can be dangerous, especially flying in combat. You, you're flying from places without airports, another place without an airport, and it, in all kinds of things and confined areas and mountaintops and so forth. So just flying is dangerous, but it's a dangerous was a dangerous business flying in Vietnam because statistically half of the pilots crashed or were shot down. That's pretty much true for our unit. We we had a, a, about half the pilots were crashed or shot down in some very serious uh, crashes. But uh, luckily, I was in the other fifty percent. None of that happened. Well, thank you, Daryl. So, just so Daryl. Oh, sorry, Melanie. No, no, go. I was just like it. Whenever you know, I'm sure you had a specific motivation for writing the book, you know. But did anything happen during the course of writing the stories or the book that you were surprised by? I mean, anything emotionally or mentally? Well, it felt good to write these things down because I was thinking about them, mm -hmm. and by writing them down, it brought back memories some good you know some a few bad but mostly good mm -hmm. and uh, it it uh it made me think about is when i wrote these stories to be honest 
it made me think about the good things that happened over there rather than uh, uh, focus on the bad things. Right. So, yeah. so there were a lot of good things that happened. Good. Oh, that's uh, what a what a blessing it is for you to be here with us today and share these stories and talk about candidly speak candidly about some of your experiences. We really uh, are grateful for that, and this is an excellent way to celebrate Veterans Day. Well, I would like to add just one thing real quick. Sure. You know, yes. I think it's so important for our kids in school to learn about history because today we were all at a restaurant and, you know, I got up to go to the restroom and we all had these t-shirts on. So this one family was asking, oh, well, you know, what are y'all doing and what's going on? And so the parents were like, oh, thank you for your service and very grateful. And the little boy at the table, I don't know how old he was, but he just said, well, what is Vietnam? Yeah. Well, it's good and bad, right? It's because because of the service that he doesn't know what Vietnam is, right? Well, but th we need to learn. Because oh, absolutely. History. If we don't absolutely. learn history, we're going to repeat it again, you know? Yeah, but because of stuff like this, it's kept us out of a lot of things. So, right. yeah, I agree. They need to learn everything. But the... I would like to say this thing about this shirt says band brother as well. The guys I flew with are like my brothers. I'll do anything for them. Not everybody has experience in their life, Daryl. Not everybody finds that band of brothers or that circle of trusted friends that, you know, that you came together through a shared experience, good or bad. So and when you think about the fact that these men have stayed in touch for over 50 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Outstanding. Says a lot. Mm -hmm. It really does. And I know they're waiting for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, they, we um, have a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> I'm, yes. So uh, just say thank you to your friends for allowing us to borrow you for a moment. Cause I yeah. know this is such a treasure time that you guys get to have. Well, they ask, will they be able to uh, watch this later? Yes, absolutely. We'll make sure and get this to you. Um, and they can buy gonna... the book on Amazon.com. <laughs> great book. It's a really great book. They have uh, they have pictures. They have pictures. Uh, they had they have the they all have the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the book is now even available. Not yet, but they're getting ready to. I was just saw it's going to be also on paperback now. So right now it's on hard copy and digital copies. It's going to be in paperback now too. So that's cool. That's great. I think people have themselves with the book and post it to social media with hashtag Phoenix 13. One yeah. last thing. That One last thing. Uh, Tommy Frank, general Tommy Franks wrote a nice introduction to the book yeah. and Lieutenant uh, Tommy Franks, served in our unit not as a pilot but in marical division artillery but he served oh, six or nine months before i got there but he uh, remembers flying in some devardi oh23 helicopters and uh, so he uh, he remembers us and he wrote a really fine introduction to the book certainly did outstanding um well, thank you so much for participating. Uh, we hope everybody thank you for doing this. Advice the book. 
um, centers absolutely supports our, our veterans, our military, and we're very grateful uh, for your service. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening. And thank you to everyone who sat and listened with us. Uh, we hope you have a blessed night. Thank you. Thank you, you know, Lynn, this is very well done. I hope you all do it again at some point. Thank you, Melody. Thank you, and good to see you all. Thank you, Janet. Love you well. Good to bye see you all. Bye. Bye-bye now. The Honoring and Healing Book Club is part of the Center Solutions Podcast, featuring Christy Edwards, Licensed Professional Counselor and CEO, and Melanie Size, Marketing and Development Director of Centers for Children and Families, a provider of counseling and mental health services for all people of all ages. Visit our website at centerstx.org.